teen eating disorders have exploded in the pandemic, and the mental health crisis facing our youth is at an all-time high. Now more than ever, we need to ensure that home and school are places that intentionally decrease, not accidentally increase, risk. And it's never too early or too late to start. The Full Bloom Project helps groups of parents and school professionals rethink how we talk about bodies, food, movement, health, and social justice to ensure we all plant protective body-positive seeds in the next generation. To learn more about our workshops, email us at info at fullbloomproject.com. I'm Zoe Bisbee, and this is the Full Bloom Project, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. When I think about body positive health care, I think of health care that affirms all bodies. Health care rooted in weight inclusivity, committed to keeping stigma out of the doctor's office, health care that gets that body diversity is real and that the BMI often harms more than it helps and recognizes that true well-being can only be attained when physical, emotional, social, economic, and other human needs are attended to. In essence, the health at every size framework for care. Weight-neutral health care just makes so much sense. But do we need to think about this differently when it comes to developing teens? I think it's tricky. For example, it's one thing for a grown adult to decline to be weighed at the doctor. I've certainly done that before. And I found it can be quite empowering to focus my conversations with my doctor on the aspects of my health that are most important to me. But I definitely want my kids to be weighed and measured at their well checks and will continue to want their growth to be monitored well into their adolescence because this is potentially relevant information related to their development and even health status. But I will also want them in their teen years to have a doctor who is aligned with our body positive values. Someone like my guest today, Dr. Shelley Agarwal. Dr. Agarwal is board certified in pediatrics and something else known as adolescent medicine, a much underutilized subspecialty. Dr. Agarwal, who is on the teaching faculty of Stanford Children's Health and UCSF Fresno, treats teens and young adults and consults on a variety of youth-specific health issues, including adolescent development, the management of eating disorders, reproductive health, the needs of the chronically ill child, weight-neutral approaches to well-being, and medical complications related to mental health conditions, to name a few. I'm thrilled she exists, as I am thrilled to share this conversation we had about what body-positive adolescent health is. I would love to start with this overview. What is adolescent medicine, and why do we need it? Adolescent medicine is a subspecialty, and physicians who work in adolescent medicine are individuals who've done primary residency training in either pediatrics, family practice, internal medicine, and then they complete an additional three years of fellowship training in adolescent and young adult health. 
right? So this person, based on their primary or base training, can treat a variety of ages. And then with adolescent medicine, they generally work with individuals who are 12 to 25 years old. That's the technical definition, right? So Mm -hmm. the artful explanation, in my opinion, is that we're a group of professionals who see health during the teen and young adult years as more than just the absence of disease, right? To quote our society, our national society, the teen years are dynamic, full of exploration, excitement, questioning. Um, It's a time when people are individuating, defining personal values, goals, evolving into adulthood, right? And a lot of developmental changes are happening, biological, social, emotional, cognitive. So adolescent and young adult health providers and doctors, we do a deeper dive into the teen and young adult developmental model. Then we look at that model in reference to how it pertains to health, disease, wellness, And the emphasis is really to engage with the young person and support them in becoming more independent and taking ownership of their own health and well-being. So one of the ways in which I present this, right, to to young people is life is going to look increasingly like your choices. When we're younger, it looks like the choices of the people around us, specifically our parents and guardians, right? But now you're getting at a point in your life where your choices you know, your life is going to look like your choices. And we want that to happen, right? We want that shift to happen. And life should look increasingly like our choices. So we want to encourage agency, practicing life, if you will, becoming increasingly independent, becoming more competent with navigating the world. Not perfect, right? We're not emphasizing perfect here. Competent. And supporting young people in in making increasingly complex decisions and even mistakes and learning and growing. So adolescent and young adult medicine as a field, but then also as a doctor and other practitioners, they partner with patients, with youth and their families in a unique way that's really informed by this specialized training with the emphasis of development. I wonder if you could share a little about the spectrum of, I I put it in quotes, quote, normal development during the adolescent years across the gender spectrum. And I love that you said you think of health not as the absence of disease, but sounds like something more holistic. Can you give us a broad brushstroke understanding of that, quote, normal development, the spectrum of normal development? That's a great uh, point uh, to discuss. So basically, you know, as humans, we're on this planet, we're another species that's experiencing birth, growth, aging. And one of the examples that I use to help kind of define development, um, and then I'll speak a little bit more about that that idea of that spectrum, is if you think of a six-month-old infant and now a three-year-old toddler, right? Assuming that they've had expected physical and cognitive development, this human is going to learn to sit, to talk, to walk, to eat increasingly independently, to become more competent with like bowel and bladder control and on and on. So the changes that come along with that, you know, gaining height, gaining weight, needing food, needing nutrition, a safe and supportive environment to facilitate all of that is understandable. And there really isn't a debate here about what's needed. Now we think of a 10-year-old child and a 20-year-old adult this human is also experiencing a massive growth and change. And they're going through a growth spurt and experiencing physical and cognitive and emotional and social change as well. This is the second most important growth time in our lives. And similarly, nutrition, supportive environment, safety is vital to that growth and overall well-being. 
So that concept of that spectrum. So chronological age can be a poor correlate for developmental stage. And so let me explain what mm. that what I mean by that. So yeah. if you think of, you know, uh, a male going through puberty, the range of that can be between the ages of nine years old and 14 years old, medically speaking. So you could have two 12-year-old boys, one who's two years into pubertal development and changes, and one who's one to two years out from starting that process. And both of these kids are quote-unquote normal. So, and the same thing goes for those other kind of developmental trajectories, that social development, that emotional development, that cognitive development. So two young people could be of the same age, but in totally different places in reference to these various developmental points. So even more important than that is that the individual themselves can be in different points for each of these. So a child may be more advanced in reference to their biological growth, but slightly younger in reference to their social or emotional stage, but they look older and they're perceived as older. Their best friend could be in a totally different place if you considered the same parameters. And the point is that while common things are common and most humans' development kind of follows similar patterns, we're all unique. And this is why it's really critical that we not compare ourselves to others and, and certainly not compare teens as they're going through these developmental stages to their peers or others. And for parents and guardians to ground themselves in the truth of the biology and that developmental framework and work with providers or, you know, clinicians that have weight-neutral, non-shaming, body-positive approaches to well-being and that, you know, parents also or guardians also think back to their own developmental process and experience of their growth and body and, you know, kind of remind themselves about what that was and, and to question the maladaptive and harmful messages sometimes that can come in into this realm. Those would be some concepts to keep in mind. Yeah. As you mentioned, that weight-neutral approach to well-being, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about that. Maybe we can anchor it in a like kind of a sample case. Like, if you start seeing, I don't know, a 12-year-old girl who is coming in because she, you know, her parents want her to have that adolescent focused healthcare versus just keeping her at her pediatrician. And let's say this parent or this family, the parents are concerned that she's in a bigger body. She seems to be gaining so much weight. She seems to be eating more than they think she quote should. And then maybe they're also concerned as they've expressed to you, you know, we're really worried, you know, we have high risk factors in our family for heart disease and diabetes. And, you know, we just don't want that for her. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like if you're getting some of these sort of this data from the family, plus their anxiety, plus their concerns, doing air quotes again about her size, and she's lucky enough to walk into your office for her health care. How are you approaching her with that weight neutral approach to well-being? There are a couple of different ways to think about that or that I would think about that as I'm working with a young person and their, and their family. First of all, my perspective on, on that weight-neutral approach and well-being is not to see anyone, specifically a human who's living in a larger body, and make assumptions about who they are, 
right? I think we're, we're all on the same page on this in terms oh, yeah. of what they eat, why they eat it, how they active they are, if they're a good person or not person, if they have a rigid, meaningful life or anything else. And unfortunately, those are the assumptions that go into how we perceive people, particularly when it comes in reference to weight, right? So basically, this goes for the medical visit too, right? This is science, but it's also art. And most of it's meeting someone where they are. And that is rarely just one reason or just one test that defines anyone's health, right, in medicine. So why would we use weight like this? You know, stress can be a big factor that affects physical and emotional health, as does joy, you know, sleep, um, moving in a joyful way, mindfulness practices, support and access to mental health resources, connections to others and community. All of this impacts the reality of our health. And to reduce it to one biomarker and say that weight mainly defines how this person is doing is not accurate and it's not a comprehensive picture of health. So unfortunately, we have this overemphasis in our culture and also in our medical culture. And this is something that does create anxiety for parents and for um, youth and for us just in general. So the first piece in working with a family and a youth is to say, hey, let's throw this out. (laughs) Let's throw (laughs) some of these concepts out and let's start with a clean slate and let's really talk about what is your concern here. Are you actually concerned that your child is struggling with ill health or are you concerned because of the messages you've gotten about what health should look like? Right. So to your earlier point um, that we were talking about in reference to what is, how do we kind of define that idea of health? And so let's really look at that. How is your child kind of experiencing their day-to-day life? Are they eating in a way that is joyful, really responding to their to their body in a way that meets their needs, you know, understanding their hunger, understanding their satiety, moving in ways that are joyful? Does your child have supportive connections and relationships? in their life. Are you communicating in a way in which, yes, you might have difficult conversations, but you're able to exchange information? These are all the pictures of health and not, not certainly not weight in and of itself or, or, you know, at all in many instances, but even in reference to family history. You know, family history, yes, the genetics inform our health and our potential for certain risks. But that too is related to a a wide variety of things. I mean, I've got a strong family history of diabetes as well, but living in fear of that as opposed to making day-to-day choices that allow me to feel like I'm experiencing my life in a way that is joyful and eating in a way that is meaningful for me and moving in a way that is meaningful for me. Those are the things that are pertinent and are gonna keep me healthier for longer as opposed to worrying about whether or not I may get diabetes. Does that answer your question? It does. And again, I really appreciate having you here, just really leaning into your medical (laughs) expertise, because I think sometimes what happens is, especially when a non-medical professional, which I am, you know, I'm a mental health professional, but I think sometimes what happens when we talk about the importance of separating weight from health. There's this maybe understandable skepticism because it sounds like in separating weight from health, we're throwing out health. And I think what you're articulating, but then also maybe bringing a little medical cred to the table is saying, no, we're taking weight 
out so that we actually can talk about health. And then in providing that holistic definition of health, right? How can you measure health? I mean, your example of being scared of a diabetes sentence and then, you know, I, I know a lot of people, right? And then trying lots of diets to control weight and then ultimately weight cycling and living in fear and maybe not in having the best quality of life. This is not necessarily a healthy lifestyle that's trying to <laughs> avoid disease. Whereas you're saying, no, I mean, if we look at health, then we can evaluate our, you know, like you said, joy, social connection, eating in ways that feel good. You know, certainly when kids are eating in ways that feel out of control to them or feel like they're laden with guilt and shame after they've eaten, that's an issue worthy of intervention. And so I think it's helpful to hear you really reinforce that message. And I hope the way I'm summarizing it tracks with what where you've been going. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yes, uh, yes to all of that. And, you know, the fundamental point, I think, um, being attuning to one's needs, right? Because that's the place from which we make the decisions in our lives. And so if we're attuned to our needs and, and able to meet those needs in a meaningful way, then, you know, those decisions reflect that. And so really, instead of emphasizing weight, emphasizing how do you work with your young person so that they are able to attune to their needs, understand, you know, what it is that they may need to respond to in the moment and really give them the grace and the space to practice and make mistakes. That's what we're all working towards. I want to hover on weight just for another moment because I'm 100% with you and removing weight from the equation and focusing on all of these other components that we actually have control over is so much more uh, sound. But I have a question and I also want to take a moment to talk a little bit about growth charts. So for those that are listening, I've mentioned growth charts on the show before and only really in the context of eating disorder treatment. Because as I know you know, Shelley, from the work you do and the work I do with adolescents, when I encounter a, a child who is struggling with, let's say, anorexia, their growth chart we look at as an important bit of data because we notice that the child has fallen off their curve. And then the goal of treatment, one of the goals is to restore them to their curve. And so that's why I know about growth charts. I mean, in general, I'm just sort of curious at the pediatrician to see how my kids are plotting and, you know, kind of guesstimate, like, will they be as short as I think they'll be? Because we're super short in my family. But I wonder, since we haven't done it before, if you could, from your medical perspective, help us understand what are growth charts? Why do we use them? How are they helpful? And then I have a couple more questions from there, but could you give us an overview? Sure. Growth charts are graphs or percentile curves that show the body measurements of children generally from birth until about 20 years old, right? The CDC is the main place that clinicians in the United States go to to kind of get these growth charts. And the World Health Organization has more of them for international care. So essentially, these look at growth patterns, right? And their patterns are reduced to a few specific parameters like height, weight, 
body mass index. And most children follow an upward and consistent developmental trajectory or curve that rises fairly rapidly when the child is very young and then slowly slopes off as we get closer to adolescence and young adulthood. And the curves are generally split up into percentiles, right? So there's like a 10th percentile, 25th percentile, 50th percentile, and and of course, um, the parameters between them as well. So plotting growth isn't a new concept, and some people even do it in their, you know, at their home on their door sill, all right? So as their child mm-hmm. is growing up every year, you kind of have your child stand and you mark with a pencil where they are that year in terms of their height and then kind of do it every year. So, you know, we even do it in our own, in our own homes. And basically, if it's done repeatedly over time, you can see the progression in these various parameters over time. And so in the medical world, based on these variables, the curves are used to track appropriate biological development. And if a child is not growing along their expected growth curve or trajectory, let's say they're falling off, as you mentioned, you know, particularly in reference to eating disorders care, or trending up in terms of crossing percentiles upwards, the thought is that something is wrong and, that some, and it needs to be addressed. So then the question becomes, you know, what are we trying to address and why are we trying to address it? And the picture is a a wide one. There's, even though we're using these variables to kind of track development, no one variable is going to define health, even citing, you know, the eating disorders parameter that you mentioned. Yes, the growth curve is showing us that, okay, something's going on here, but what's actually needed to to address the, the health concerns for this youth are so much wider than just the growth curve. It's a, the growth chart is a tool used to alert medical professionals to appropriate development and guide the evaluation process. They are not and should not be the sole variable by which decisions are being made, right? So, I'll give you an example. You know, a a loved one in my family um, has a congenital heart condition in which the valve in their heart just didn't develop the way in which most heart valves develop, right? So this individual had open heart surgery when they were 14 years old. Based on their family genetics, um, he should have landed somewhere between 6'2 and 6'4, but he's about 5'11". And and disgruntled about that, <laughs> but, <laughs> he, but should he, also, my, he should come to my he should come to my family the five, the tallest person's five eight. <laughs> there you go. But so the other thing is, as a young child, the this person didn't have the same endurance, right? And so they loved sports, but just weren't able to keep up. And once again, disgruntled because they really thought they could be a professional athlete and just yeah. weren't able to achieve it, right? But their development, their height potential even their weight gain as a young child was fundamentally influenced by their primary medical condition. Now, obviously, the growth chart in and of itself wasn't the thing that defined their health. It was something that allowed for the evaluation to see, hey, there's something going on with this kid. Why is this kid not developing or growing in the same way that you would anticipate them to do that? I mean, that's kind of a broad overview in reference to how you know growth charts can be used to to help track development, but they shouldn't be the sole tool. I think that's helpful. And, you know, I do find that I lean towards in the way that I look at BMI with this, like, oh, don't, I don't even care. It, it's just, I have right. so many problems with the, you know, the historical roots of it and also Correct. just how problematic and the stigma. 
So I'm just like, yeah, BMI, I don't even look at it. Whereas what's interesting is that with growth charts, because of the way I've used them in my professional work, I'm really fascinated by them and I, I value them. And I, I appreciate you putting them in their place. It's a tool. It's not the you know end-all, be-all. And I wonder, you know, on one hand, the question I'm about to ask, it almost centers weight and uh, more than perhaps we even should. But one question I've had in the past is, you know, I, I've worked with teens that have always been those kind of 90th percenters, right, for weight. And they've just always been bigger kids. They were maybe bigger babies and they were certainly bigger toddlers. And like you look at their chart and they've just always kind of been in the 90th percentile, right? And that could be for height, for weight. In this case, I'm talking about weight. And I think this gets a little sticky because on one hand, some of these kids are just built this way. Like they're moving and they're joyful and they're eating and they're not feeling guilt or shame and they they do eat vegetables, but they also don't feel bad when they eat a cheeseburger. You know, like they're healthy kids by all those sort of metrics, right, that you were describing earlier. And maybe they fall into what we you know, are told is the overweight quote, right? Or quote, obese category. And this can be confusing, right? I mean, this happens with adults as well. But I wonder, how do you tell the difference between a kid or a person for that matter, or, you know, teen, that's who we're centering today, who's just like in a bigger body, that's just like the way they're built, versus a kid whose weight is a symptom of something else that's going on that has them sort of not living in their genetic weight, not at their set point, if set point's even a thing for teens. Does the question make sense? It does. It does. And, and maybe we can, we, you know, we just kind of talk it out together. So I think the main thing that I respond to with that is you treat the individual right? So you mentioned a lot of wonderful things in reference to someone who might be growing along the 90th percentile growth curve and who is free of guilt and shame and eating in a way and moving in a way that is joyful and um, and experiencing their life in a positive way. That child is healthy, right? That human right. is healthy. And uh, we look, once again, at that wider picture in reference to you know, we would potentially just for routine screening, like, you know, cholesterol levels, blood pressure, heart rate, activity, sleep, in terms of eating in a way you understand your hunger and satiety cues, enjoying food, enjoying wide, diverse foods. Those are all markers of health. And the 90th percentile doesn't mean much in that sense. And, you right. know, if that's just where always that, that person has been, that's, that's just where they're going to be. Now, in reference to that second piece of someone who's potentially growing along that same percentile or a lower one, right? But who has not got those behaviors that, that really define that wider picture of health, that would be concerning. And that would be the conversation with the young person and the family. Hey, what is going on with your life? What are your patterns of how you're eating, how you're moving, how you're sleeping, how you're feeling. And so we have this emphasis in medicine on these biomarkers because they're measurable and, and because they're trackable. And, and you know, and in terms of trying to figure out ways in which we can use things to kind of assess, hey, are we doing this right? We're doing this wrong. But the truth of it is, is 
What about this young person's mood? How are they doing in school? Is anxiety a thing? Are they feeling like they do have those supportive connections? How is that related to their choices around nutrition? Are they eating in a way that is maybe for self-soothing or coping or avoiding for those reasons, right? So once again, the, the growth charts and the trajectories become a, a tool to help evaluate the larger picture, but it really speaks to the behaviors and what's going on with this person and their family unit to better frame what the interventions would be and what other individuals and team members are needed to really help this youth and family kind of realize optimal health. I really appreciate this conversation. And I think that there's a little bit of a hesitance sometimes to acknowledge that, you know, certainly falling off the growth curve, right? Losing weight in childhood, in adolescence for that matter, to me, and I'm curious if you agree, is just always a red flag. Would you agree? So gosh, that's a complex picture. Like, you know, the thought that comes to my mind is a young person who has got a chronic health diagnosis and maybe on medications that change their sense of of appetite or Mm. how they're eating. And as they're being taken off off these medications, you know, their their sense of appetite and and also their energy level, things like that might change. So their, their weight can fluctuate or modify. So maybe I'm overthinking it, but I'm just thinking of that wider lens in reference to the various scenarios. And then, you know, same point, it just, it's individual. Right. And so there are situations in which it could be perfectly fine, but it, it would be an individual kind of assessment. So maybe I'll change the question. I'll tweak it because I think you're actually speaking right to the heart of what I'm trying to get at. We do want to, like, I think that there's this, Kind of not rhetoric, but I, I don't know, you know, in, in certainly in like the body positive world, right? Especially with adults, no matter what your body size is, it's fine. You're, you deserve dignity and clothing that fits. And, you know, there, there's almost this emphasis to like forget about size, forget about weight. And I actually think that can give way to a lot of really positive feeling and positive engagement with health behaviors if we stop making it about weight and size. With kids that are growing, I'm hearing you say, even in the example of the teen that's on a medication and coming off of it, that like a weight fluctuation would make sense, but we would need more details to understand why that was happening. So that whether a kid is falling off their growth curve, let's say they're losing weight or they're gaining weight in a way that is pushing them into another kind of percentile of their growth curve or they're kind of like wonky up and down. Is it then fair to say that we, we wouldn't want to be reaction? We wouldn't want to be reactive like, oh my gosh, there's a problem here. But we might want to say that's an important data point that we need to better understand the fuller picture because that is atypical for development. What do you think of that? No, I think that that's an absolutely fair point. You're exactly right in the sense that it's a fuller picture. And so, yes, we have these data points or this collection of data points where we're looking at these growth curves over time. And now we need to basically, okay, there's something going on. We can see it kind of in this graphic format. Now let's talk about what could be leading to what we're seeing here. So 
you know, we do this comprehensive history or we're taught to in the, in the medical world and that, you know, in terms of, hey, what's going on with what medical diagnoses you may have? What medications are you taking? What is going on in your day-to-day life? And, and, you know, breaking down some of the things that I mentioned before. So absolutely, in reference to fluctuations can be fine. You don't want a lot of fluctuation, right? In general, even even if you might have a little bit of fluctuation, you still want someone who's kind of growing appropriately for their developmental stage. But if you are seeing fluctuations or you're seeing some of the things you mentioned, getting a wider understanding of what is contributing to this. And those are the things that will need to be addressed, right? So it's kind of like the growth curve can give you information, but ultimately you're addressing the things that are leading to the changing picture and not the growth curve. That is so well said. And I'm thinking about a conversation I had. I was on another podcast and we were talking with a pediatrician and like a puberty expert. And we were talking about weight loss in puberty. And I think I was saying, it's a big wet red flag, weight loss in puberty is never good, you know, and I, this, you're, you're helping me see more nuance. Um, but I think what I'm, what I'm realizing is, let's say you have a kid who's, let's say that 12-year-old, who's, regardless of the size, we discover that they aren't feeling like they have a great relationship with food, that let's say there is some binge eating going on, there's something out of control happening. And then that kid gets support not for weight loss, I want to be clear, not for weight loss, not a diet, not a nutritionist who's going to help that child eat less, no, but rather treatment for the binge eating, right? Treatment for getting help with regulating, getting other support, you know, other self-soothing skills and, and hopefully comes out of that with a more peaceful relationship with food where there's more balance, there's more, you know, essentially more intuitive eating happening. And as a consequence, a possible side effect of that behavioral change, we see the weight trend down. If you're the pediatrician or if you're the adolescent medicine doctor, how are you understanding that? How are you feeling about that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the primary thing that you just mentioned is addressing that peaceful relationship with food. And just to expand on that concept, the peaceful relationship with self. Right? right? So if you have a young person who has been struggling with binge eating and they've, you know, subsequently had a change in kind of in their weight in a certain way, and as those behaviors are being regulated and as that person is eating in a way that is um, more attuned and also sustainable for them, and you notice changes in their weight and perhaps they're moving towards where they might more naturally live, that's Okay right? We don't want to see any sharp dives. We don't want to see any like, you know, significant fall-offs. And even if you start seeing that trend downward, you want to make sure it's also happening in a reasonable way, in a reasonable range. Once again, you don't want to see any dramatic changes. And the primary thing still goes back to what are the other behaviors going on in that young person's life that are supporting them getting to a more regulated place, you know, emotionally, Um, and in a variety of other um, parameters, as well as potentially their weight. So it it goes back to exactly what you said in reference to really understanding what's going on with the behaviors and how this person is becoming more regulated. And then 
the secondary piece in reference to if you notice changes in these biomarkers, as long as we're not noticing these dramatic downs or ups or downs, that's fine. You know, you just, you continue to monitor, you continue to follow up, you continue to make sure that those, that we're staying in a stable space and that we're not seeing those dramatic changes over time. And then checking in with the person to make sure that they're continuing to get the support services that they need to maintain that regulation. Yeah. And I mean, that's a distinction from, you know, a child is put on a diet and then they lose weight that I would hope a physician. And unfortunately, I don't think, (laughs) I think you're more of a diamond in the rough, Shelly, but (laughs) I I think that most physicians wouldn't say, oh, I'm concerned that it's, you know, it's this diet that this 13 year old is on that's supporting this weight loss. Because again, going back to the behaviors, that's not really sustainable change. That's kind of a setup for not such good things to come. Yeah, no, and that's a great point. And actually, that that is, you're absolutely right in reference to the fact that our culture, including medical culture, positively reinforces uh, dieting in ways that, that can be very harmful. And so if someone has been living at an elevated weight and they come in and, you know, they've lost weight, that might be positively reinforced in terms of, oh, look at that, you know, your percentiles are lower or you're in a more quote unquote healthy percentile. And that is very damaging, can be very damaging. And that is something that also should be evaluated. And that also should be a conversation in reference to what is going on with the fact that your weight has gone down this much. How are you eating? How are you supporting yourself? Are you depriving yourself? So that is a great point because we really do have to keep our antennas up for that and question it. And parents and guardians should question that as well because we don't want to reinforce the the very dangerous practices of dieting, uh, including in medicine. Unfortunately, that happens more than it than it should. It's true. It's sort of old wisdom that hopefully hopefully we'll move towards more weight neutral medical practice and it really needs to make its way into medical schools. I don't know if you know anything about the, yes. the movement towards, you know, more weight neutral informed training. Is there anything on the horizon? So there are definitely more and more practitioners and clinicians having these conversations and challenging diet culture and medical dogma and um, pushing back on these ideas and destigmatizing food and body. And that is seeping into the training as well. So it's it's happening. It's happening, mm-hmm. probably not at the, the pace that uh, we would all like. And to be perfectly honest, I'm going to be very upfront. You know, I, I bought into a lot of my traditional nutritional training as well for a long time. And it was as you know, I got a more expansive view and started learning more about weight neutral approaches, you know, body positive approaches, health at every size approaches. Learned a lot from Signa Darpinian and Wendy Sterling, who are amazing women that, that you know well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it started debunking these ideas. And also I come uh, from the lens of integrative medicine and also from cultural norms where, you know, larger bodies are more acceptable. Mm -hmm. And so it's amazing how we kind of put those to the side and for a while, uh, unfortunately allowed myself to get caught up in these ideas of, of weight being overly emphasized as a marker for health. But the point is that 
there are people who are debunking these ideas and challenging these norms in medicine. And going back to that original question about adolescent and young adult uh, uh, clinicians, I think I'm a little biased here, but I think they do. <laughs> they do more of that. And once again, around that developmental trajectory and helping to align with patients in reference to their goals. So yeah, it's happening. It's happening for sure. Yeah. Well, that, that's hopeful and maybe a good note to end on. Before we, we go, would you say that anybody that has an adolescent it's better for them to seek out adolescent medicine versus staying in their pediatrician, or is it more of a case-by-case thing? So I think there are excellent pediatricians and family practitioners, internal medicine, wonderful physicians who do amazing work with their young person. So I would say, you know, kind of following your instincts in reference to this is, this is your medical person and you want to stay with them, your youth wants to stay with them, that's great. But once again, a little bit biased. I think mm-hmm. adolescent young adult doctors are fantastic in the way in which they approach the conversations and kind of supporting that increased autonomy um, is, is really key. So even if you don't decide to transition maybe for your uh, you know, general health care for your teen, we, we are subspecialists, you can always consult right? You mm-hmm. can always check it out. Go to their office, meet with uh, clinicians, see kind of what the vibe is, how you know what your working relationship, what your teen's working relationship is with them. But um, it, I think having that lens and having someone kind of move with your young person into their young adult years, in my perspective, is a positive. On that note, if anyone listening is like, ah, I, I'd like to find one, please email me, info at fullbloomproject.com. And I'm sure between the two of us and all the other medical professionals I'm aware of, we, we could probably find some resources in your in your community. My sense is it's an untapped resource, but maybe I maybe that's my own bias. No, I think you're right. I, I think we are an untapped resource and and um, yes, I agree with you on that. Yes. So we need to tap in. <laughs> <laughs> Shelly, thank you so much for all of this. And would you want to mention your book before we sign off? Well, thank you. Yeah, so um, I mentioned Signa Darpinian and Wendy Sterling earlier, and Signa is a therapist and Wendy is a dietitian. And the three of us collaborated in writing our latest book, Raising Body Positive Teens, A Parent's Guide to Diet-Free Living, Exercise, and Body Image. And um, we're hoping that it can be a useful point of reference for parents and guardians as they're looking at preventative strategies to really support their teen and young person in true wellness as it relates to a friendship with food and body. But we've got lots of other pieces in there, you know, mindfulness, uh, chapter on sleep, even on tech. So um, that's our our latest book and, and hopefully can be a resource for people. I'm sure it will be. It's so compatible with the stuff we talk about here at Full Bloom and they've put it all together in a really accessible, beautiful guide. So thank you for that and for your time here today. Thank you very much, Zoe. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Full Bloom Podcast. For more body positive nurturing content and conversation, you can find me on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. Special thanks to Davis Lloyd, Christina Regal, and all of you who helped support the Full Bloom Project 
by rating, reviewing, and sharing these episodes. See you next time.